The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 70. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, to bring to remembrance. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Okay, we are going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 1 still. We got a couple more sermons in Deuteronomy 1. This is going to be Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 25. So Deuteronomy 1, starting in verse 9. And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, The thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I commanded your judges at the time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously, between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, The Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. The plan pleased me well, so I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol. And spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Anybody seeing Jesus all over that? Deuteronomy 1 has thus far been a marvelous presentation of Christ and what God would do through him. This continues to be true in the verses ahead today. God has selected various words through Moses to convey to us a panorama of what has previously been much more minutely detailed. And yet there are obvious changes from the original narrative, some insertions, and many exclusions. In this, it becomes obvious as a point of theological doom for the small-minded people who willingly look to identify the books of Moses, and indeed even various portions, verses, or words as having come from one source or another, rather than from Moses. This is an easy way out of doing the hard work of trying to determine why God made those changes and of what significance they are. But the funny thing is that as easy as it is to take this path, scholars then go and spend countless hours, even entire careers, working on not pursuing the original God-centered path. In fact, many of them have spent a lot more effort on this futile endeavor than they ever would have if they had simply taken the word at face value and searched it out from that perspective. Our text verse comes from Psalm 19. It is verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The psalmist says the testimony of the Lord is sure. He said this because he was sure concerning the testimony of the Lord. One will either be sure of the Lord's word and pursue it from that perspective, or he will have no faith in the word of the Lord and pursue it from that perspective. The changes in the accounts previously seen and of those in Deuteronomy, rather than showing that they are later additions, clearly demonstrate that they are original. Nobody who would later write another narrative would have made such obviously varied details, nor would they have left out so much of the already provided detail. The stories mesh harmoniously, and yet they simply give different information that was needed or is now needed, and nothing else. This is the same situation that arises between the three synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They provide exactly what is needed and nothing else. But such as this will never satisfy the naysayer. If the accounts in the Gospels were identical, they would be called forgeries because of that. If there is any perceived difference between them, they will be called forgeries because of that. One must come to this word looking for truth, and he must do so looking for Christ. When these two thoughts unite, then a right understanding of why things are the way they are becomes evident. And so let us do this as we do each week. Let us search for God's truth in the passage before us, and let us search for God's Messiah there as well. Such wonderful treasures are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, how can I alone bear your problems? It's verses 9 through 18. Verse 9, and I spoke to you at that time saying, Moses uses the word amar or said here rather than the more common debar or spoke. It should say, and I said to you at that time saying. The use of this word implies the need for cooperation rather than a direct word for something to be carried out. With this thought in mind, the next words make more sense. Verse 9 continues, I alone am not able to bear you. This is as much an appeal for help as it is a statement of fact. If a person is walking on a long hike, like I went with Sergio and Yossi last year, and he says to those with him, I am not able to carry this load anymore, he is implying to the others that he wants their help in carrying it. It is important to note that Moses' words here bring about the recollection of two distinct events in his time of leading Israel. The reason this is important is that his words now are actually only recorded after their time at Horeb, after they march from Sinai to Canaan. However, the words are not necessarily chronological, but in an arrangement of thought. And that thought began while at Horeb, meaning Mount Sinai. The first event was actually a suggestion from Jethro, which occurred at Horeb in Exodus chapter 18, where it said this, and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. Then the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit? And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. After saying this, he gave advice to Moses concerning sharing the responsibility of decisions of lesser importance with selected men in a top-down pyramid fashion. Moses took his advice, and a great burden was taken off of his shoulders. Although not specifically stated in Exodus 18, it is certain that Moses spoke to the elders at that time of his intentions because of what was suggested by Jethro, and which was then approved by the Lord. As it came to be according to the Lord's will, Moses then conveyed that to the people. Secondly, and more directly recorded, however, was Moses' appeal to the Lord while at Taborah, that is, after they left Sinai. It is a continuation of the relieving of the burden on Moses, which began at Horeb. Here's what it says, Numbers 11. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, every one at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses was also displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all of these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? 
where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. At that time, the Lord had Moses gathered together 70 elders of Israel, and he took the spirit that was on Moses and put the same upon them. In this, they were able to share the overall burden of leadership in a different way. Rather than a top-down structure, it was one which consisted more in mutual cooperation and which extended laterally at the top. This was conveyed to these chosen men, and they were given as a sign that what was proposed had come to pass, because, as is recorded, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and took of the spirit that was on him, and placed the same upon the seventy elders, and it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Before going on, let us consider what is being presented. Verse 2 showed what a short journey Israel had to make in order to enter into the land of promise, just 11 days. However, it then noted that they are now in their 40th year since leaving Egypt. In verses 5 through 8, the instructions for leaving Horeb and entering into the land are given, including a brief description of the land. With that came the promise that the land stood before them, the land sworn to their fathers. We saw all that last week. All they needed to do was go up and receive what was promised. In verse 9, authority was given to the people. It was not Moses alone who bore it, but people at all levels, meaning tens of thousands of people who were in authority over thousands, hundreds, and tens. And further, there were 70 at the very top who also possessed the same spirit that was on Moses. Understanding this and keeping it at the forefront of our minds, Moses next says to them, verse 10, The Lord, your God, has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. This verse recalls the promises of the Lord that were stated all the way back in Genesis. First, he made this promise twice to Abraham. He first did so in Genesis 15 with these words. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. He restated the promise when Abraham obediently took Isaac up Mount Moriah to offer him as a burnt offering. It says there in Genesis 22, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. Here it is, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. The Lord then confirmed the promise to Isaac. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. Then I will make, here it is, your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Finally, using a similar expression, the sand on the seashore, it is seen that the promise continued through Jacob. Genesis 32, then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all of the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." Despite their time of bondage in Egypt, the Lord had faithfully remembered his covenant promises to these patriarchs, and he had fulfilled his words to them through maintaining Israel, increasing them, and then bringing them out of Egypt and towards the land of promise. Moses' words say, As the stars in the heavens in multitude. He chose this expression because it cannot be considered hyperbole. 
at any given time, the human eye cannot see more than three to 5,000 stars. But Israel numbered over 600,000 fighting men, plus many others. Moses is reminding the people that the Lord had not only been faithful, but that he had given them both the leadership necessary to take them into the land, and he had given them the numbers to make this possible. With that thought in mind, he next says, verse 11, May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are. After noting that the Lord had accomplished what he said he would do, Moses next calls for an even greater blessing upon the people. This is not something that was previously said. Rather, it is a parenthetical thought inserted by Moses into his ongoing narrative before he continues with his discourse. The reason he is saying this now is because of what he has already said in verse 9 and what he will repeat again in verse 12. He acknowledges that he cannot bear the people, and thus such a magnificent increase in the people of Israel would be because they had a true leader, the God of their fathers, Jehovah. It is a spoken prayer for multiplication even beyond the promises already fulfilled in the people who sat before him. And further, verse 11 continues, and bless you as he has promised you. The words are in the same order as were spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2. There the Lord said, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, the blessing is not limited to numbers and physical increase, but it transcends that. The blessing is spiritual in nature. There are many nations which have become great in number, but they lack the blessing of the Lord. Abraham would become great in number, but he, meaning his descendants, would also possess the spiritual blessing. This is what Moses now again petitions the same Lord, Jehovah, for. They had the numbers, but they also had been under punishment for rejecting the Lord. He is preparing them for entry into the land, and he is calling for their physical increase to be accompanied by the promised spiritual increase. With that parenthetical thought now uttered, he continues with the narrative of what brought them to this point. Verse 12, how can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Moses now continues with his narrative. Recalling the words of verse 9, where he said he alone was not able to bear the people. It wasn't just that there was a great multitude that he could not handle, but that the people put their difficulties upon him. He describes these difficulties as problems, burdens, and complaints. The word translated as problems here is a new and a very rare word, Torah, which is found only here in Isaiah 1 verse 14 coming from a verb, tarach, which is only found in Job 37, verse 11. There, it speaks of the clouds being saturated with water. One can think of being filled to maximum capacity and thus under a weight which cannot be physically tolerated. And so, what we have here are the three things which were weighing down on Moses. The word torach describes the people themselves. They are of a capacity that Moses cannot physically bear himself. The word masa, or burdens, speaks of the people's own burdens, which they then heaped on Moses. And the riv, or complaints, are the people's quarrels between themselves, between themselves and Moses, and between themselves and the Lord. Moses felt these various negative aspects of the people and their lives in himself, and so a remedy was spoken out. Verse 13, choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men. The word choose is acceptable. The Hebrew says, give to you. The people were to give themselves men who would lead from among themselves. One would be expected to only give himself something which is good. And this is what Moses intended for them to do as a collective group. As we saw earlier in Exodus 18, Jethro made his recommendation to Moses. There, he also highlighted various aspects of the men to be selected. He said that they should be selected from all the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Jethro looked more to the moral aspects of the men to be selected. Moses speaks here of the administrative or technical aspects of the men. They are to be hakam or wise. That is a person who already possesses knowledge and then takes that knowledge and applies it in an appropriate manner. They are to be bin or understanding 
meaning that they can discern a matter, perceive what is appropriate to the situation, and then apply the wisdom that they possess to ensure the proper goal is met. And they are to be yada, or knowing. This is experiential knowledge of a matter in order to be able to relay that knowledge onto others as each situation calls for. These men were to be, verse 13 continues, from among your tribes. There are two particular words which are most often translated as tribes in the books of Moses. One is mate, the other is shevet. They both signify a type of staff or a rod, and both come from roots signifying to branch off. Though very similar in intent, mate looks more to a genealogical stem and branch, whereas shevet looks to a political one. The first is never used in Deuteronomy, while the latter, Shevet, is seen 18 times. Moses understands that the genealogical records of Israel have been set. The people have been counted, and the families have been identified and detailed. What he is concerned about is preparing the people for entrance into Canaan, and so his words focus on the political aspect of tribal division. In providing him with a list of such people for these political bodies, Moses says, verse 13 continues, and I will make them heads over you. In giving to themselves such people, Moses would then appoint them to be leaders. It would be self-defeating to choose men who are unqualified, and so Moses trusted that those selected would meet the qualifications. Obviously, the idea went over well. Verse 14, and you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. This has never been stated in the ongoing narrative, and so the reason for including the words may not seem apparent, but it is the same reason for every single thing that has been said and everything that will be said all the way through the rest of this chapter. Nothing was forced upon the people. They agreed to everything that was said, and the blame for all that occurred, which brought them under punishment, rests solely with them. Here, they agreed with their own mouths to the structure which would govern them. When the people rebelled against the Lord, it was their leaders who they appointed, they agreed to them, and they appointed them, who failed to step in and lead the people as they should have. We are, at all times, being shown typological pictures of Israel's rejection of Jesus. It is the leaders who are focused on throughout the Gospels, isn't it? And into the epistles as well. In the leader's rejection of their responsibilities, all of the people collectively suffered. This is because all of Israel agreed to the very structure of government under which they lived, which was founded at the time of Moses 1,400 years earlier. Verse 15, So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. This corresponds to Exodus 18.25. As suggested by Moses, as authorized by the Lord, and as accepted by the people, Moses made the appointments. In this, two designations are made, sare and shoturim, rulers and officers. The word shoter comes from a root signifying to write, and thus it would be a scribe. By implication, it speaks of a type of magistrate. Why is that important? It is because the same types of people were still leading Israel at the time of Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees. They fill the same type of offices that had been filled at the beginning. Though the Pharisees were more to be considered a religious sect, they, along with the Sadducees, were considered as leaders to the people. But they failed to submit to the Lord, just as these now appointed leaders failed to do so. Verse 16, then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. Moses now speaks out words of command, which begin with, Hear. One must listen before he can judge. It is as important for the judge to open his ear to hear a case as it is for him to keep his hand closed from any bribe which may affect his judgment. And their judgment was to be fairly made between a man and his brother, without partiality, even to a man and a stranger, meaning anyone who dwelt among Israel, but who was not of Israel. Justice was to be blind to the man or the state of the man. Further, verse 17, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. The Hebrew essentially reads, 
you shall not recognize faces. When two come forward to present their cases, it was to be as if they had masks on so that neither could be recognized. The precept is substantially repeated in Exodus 23, verse 2, and Leviticus 19, verse 15. Whether poor or wealthy, whether unknown or well-known, or for any other such reason, the judges were to remain impartial. But this is one of the reasons that Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. They devoured the houses of the lowly widows simply because they could. Verse 17 continues, you shall not be afraid in any man's presence. Here it basically said, you shall not be afraid from the face of any man. It doesn't matter how important he is, how influential he is, how big and scary he is, or for any other reason. The judgment was to be made without fear. Verse 17 going on, for the judgment is God's. The idea here is that of complete surrender of one's judgment in such matters, because the one judging is answerable to God. The general idea of this thought though under a different context, is well expressed by the words found in Hebrews 13, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The failing of the rulers at Jesus' time concerning this very idea is expressed in John 12, 42 and 43 with these words. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, They did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Here it is, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. There was a greater fear of what man could do than what God was sure to do. In this, the rulers failed the people, and the people came under the collective punishment promised in the word of God. Verse 17 continues, that case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. This is what Jesus said to the people. They brought matters up which were difficult. Even the leaders challenged Jesus. And when this occurred, he would lead them right back to Moses, such as in Mark 10, 3, when the subject of divorce came about. His first response to them was, what did Moses command you? Also, in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he said that those whom Lazarus appealed for should hear Moses and the prophets, further telling him that if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Moses was to be the ultimate authority for the decisions to be rendered. When something from the law needed clarification, even at the time of Jesus, they were to go to those who were responsible for the law. This is recorded in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you, observe. That observe and do but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Verse 18, and I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. This encompasses everything passed on to the people after the initial giving of the Ten Commandments. After that awesome display, it then said the following from Exodus 20. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. His words now cover from that time all the way through their almost year-long stay at the mountain. After this comes our next thought, but before that next thought comes a poetic break. We are on our way to the promised land, taking our leave and heading out. It is a place of beauty and glory, so we understand. To the Lord our God we shall raise a shout. Here we are at the door ready to enter in. We are ready to take possession of what is promised to us, restoration and paradise are about to begin. But who is this? Who is this Jesus? He claims that he is the way. How can that be? We demand a sign. If he will do for us the thing that we say, only then will we, our faith towards him, align. Here we are at the door, ready to enter in. But is there some other way for our restoration to begin? Our second thought, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Verses 19 through 25. Verse 19, so we departed from Horeb. This was recorded in Numbers 10. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. It is from this point that the thought of verse 2 is to be remembered. Israel was led by the Lord. They had leaders chosen from among themselves, and Kadesh Barnea was an 11-day journey away. 
In just 11 days, they were set to begin their entrance into the land of promise. That means they should have arrived at that point on the first day of the third month of the second year. Until then, verse 19 continues, and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites. The term Hagadol, or the great, speaks of the vastness of the area. It stretches so far that it is an 11-day journey. The term Hanorah, or the terrible, speaks of that which is fearful or awesome. The location is so barren and dry that it cannot be plowed and planted. It is a vast wasteland leading to a land of abundance and promise. One can imagine it comparable to the span of human existence apart from Christ. There is a vastness to it which extends from the fall until the millennium, and it is a terrible existence when compared to that which lies ahead for those of promise. As we saw in the first Deuteronomy sermon, 11 is the number which marks disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration. The description given by Moses now beautifully expresses that state for humanity in life apart from Christ. It is horrible, even to the thought of death to which this place extended, both before their arrival at Kadesh, at several key points where they complained against the Lord, and to after their rejection of the Lord when they were turned back into it to die apart from the promise. Verse 19 continues, as the Lord our God commanded us. As a people, they have been redeemed from Egypt. Despite the horrid state of what lay ahead, he would be with them and he would deliver them. And so he commanded their departure as is recorded in Numbers 10. Verse 10, 13, so they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Verse 19 continues, then we came to Kadesh Barnea. The name Kadesh Barnea, or Holy Purifying Wanderings, was not used until Numbers chapter 32, when there was a possible second turning of the people. Before that, it was only known as Kadesh, or Holy. Moses uses the full name now to remind them that their disobedience is what brought about their punishment. The wanderings that they had to go through came after not before their arrival at the doorstep of Canaan. It is they, because of their own rejection of the Lord, who are not purified to enter the promise, and so they were turned away. Moses' words have been, and they continue to be, carefully selected to show Israel that what had befallen them was solely their own fault. As this entire account pictures Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, it is, whether it sounds cold or not, showing them that the misery of the past 2,000 years has been a self-inflicted wound. They had been led through their history to the promise, meaning Christ. Verse 20, And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Moses presented to Israel the land of promise. Here it is. You have come to the land which the Lord our God is giving us. And Moses also presented to Israel the man of promise. Here he is. You have come to the one which the Lord our God has given us. As has been the case each time that they are mentioned in this chapter, the name Amorite is singular in the Hebrew. It is also prefixed by an article, the Amorite. The name signifies the renowned. And so one can see that it is a typological reference to the Lord. You have been brought to the mount of the renowned, the one spoken of and who possesses the land. It is this which is promised to Israel a dwelling with the Lord. And it is this which Israel turned away from, even though Moses implored them to enter. Verse 21, look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. The Lord led Israel right to the doorstep of Canaan. He set it before them as a gracious offering. And the Lord led Israel to the door, which is Christ. They were at the threshold given as a gracious offering. Moses spoke to them, imploring them to enter Canaan, and Moses, through the law, implored them to enter. Go. Verse 21 continues, go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Here Moses recalls the word of the Lord God. This was stated many times between Exodus and Numbers. One example is from Exodus 3, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Likewise, the Lord God of their father spoke many times of possessing the promise, meaning Christ and his kingdom. 
Jesus confirms this in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The scriptures are literally filled with hints of the coming Messiah. His manifestation to the people of Israel was as obvious as Israel's arrival at the threshold of Canaan. Go, take possession. Is everybody seeing the parallels? He's showing them the land of promise. He's showing them Christ. He's showing them the land of promise. He's showing them Christ. It's time to go into the land. It's time to receive Christ. Verse 21 continues, do not fear or be discouraged. Not do fear and not be discouraged. The words are a close reflection of John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid. The themes repeat because the Lord is trying to wake his people up to his word, his promises, and the reliability of who he is in relation to them. In trusting in the Lord, there is to be no fear, and there is nothing which can allow one to be discouraged. Israel, however, took another path, starting with the next words. Verse 22, and every one of you came near to me. Moses is speaking to those of the congregation sitting on the side of the Jordan, waiting to enter. All of those who came before him at that time are now dead. And yet, he says, And came near to me, all of you. The leaders speak for the people, and the nation is a collective whole. Thus, the idea conveyed to Moses represents the desire of the collective, and it speaks of all at any time. What the leaders did is as if the people now have done. Verse 22 continues and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us. Taking the original account together with this one, there is an order to what occurred. The idea was given by the people to Moses. From there, he took it to the Lord for the Lord's approval. The Lord gave them what they wanted, meaning he allowed them free will to choose their own path. The only reason for such a request is personal fear and trepidation. It is a display of unbelief. The Lord had proven himself countless times up to this point. He had promised what the land would be like and that the land would be delivered up to Israel. Upon entry, their satisfaction would be assured. But again, a parallel is seen in the leaders of Israel. The Lord, through the law, had led Israel directly to Messiah, and Messiah held the promises which lay ahead. But instead of accepting him at face value, they asked for more. They directly challenged him in this, just as Israel is directly challenging the Lord now. Here's what it says in Matthew 16. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. The land of promise lay ahead and Israel asked for proofs. The Messiah stood before them and Israel asked for proofs. But heaven is received by faith not by demand. Christ's answer to them was, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And the sign of Jonah was given to them, a year for a day. Jonah prophesied that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days, and Jerusalem was destroyed 40 years later. Israel failed to believe, and they were under punishment for 40 years in the wilderness. A year for each day the spies were gone. Verse 22 continues, And bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up, and of the cities into which we shall come. The spies, instead of bringing these things back as requested, brought back a bad report. The way is given. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the city which is promised is described. The New Testament tells us what the spies should have provided. The gospel and its promises, however, must be accepted by faith. Verse 23, the plan pleased me well. The Hebrew reads, Vayetav hadavar, and was good in my eyes, the word. Moses had no problem showing them what delights lay ahead because he knew that the Lord could deliver. And in fact, the law does tell us of, of what lies ahead. Interspersed throughout the Old Testament are descriptions of what God promises in glory. Those who came to Jesus asked for more, though. He was unwilling because they already had the word of the Lord, which told them all that they needed to know, and they had the further miracles that had already been accomplished by him throughout Israel. They simply failed to accept what their eyes saw and what the Lord promised to them. 
Verse 23 continues, So I took 12 of your men, one from each tribe. Just as Jesus designated 12 apostles, the 12 spies were selected to provide details for the people to understand the nature of the glory which lay ahead. The 12 apostles were selected for the same reason. Did Israel accept the positive words of the spies? Did Israel accept the positive words of the apostles? Verse 24, And they departed and went up into the mountains. It more literally reads, And they turned and went up into the mountain. Mountain is singular. In understanding the typology, one can not help but see a hint of what the author of Hebrews says from Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The spies were to see the land of promise and describe it to the people. The apostles say that those who come to Christ, the true promise, have come to Mount Zion. They have come to Jesus. Verse 24 continues, and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. Here, almost all of the details and locations of the journey of Numbers 13 are ignored. The account focuses solely on the Valley of Eshkol, which is the last place noted in the Numbers 13 account. He could have chosen any point along the journeys, but his words single out the Valley of Eshkol. And so Nahal Eshkol, or the Valley of Eshkol, must be again explained. The word Nahal signifies a wadi, where water would flow through during the seasons of rain. That word comes from Nahal, meaning to take possession or to inherit. Eshkol means cluster, but that comes from the word Eshek, meaning a testicle. As we learn then, this pictured Christ's work. Once having been accepted, he took possession of that which proceeds from the spot where man is generated from. In other words, it is a picture of the overriding of original sin in man. Sin transfers from the father to the child. The semen which is generated in man is what transfers that sin. Christ has, through his work, taken possession of that in all who move from Adam to him. It is the realization of the kingdom for his people through this act. This, however, as we will see again, was rejected by Israel. Just as Israel, at the word of the spies who went into the valley of Eshkol, had rejected the promises of the Lord. Moses is giving us a recounting of what brought them to the disaster that followed. That, in turn, is given to show Israel today what brought about their own punishment when they rejected Christ and his work. Verse 25 finishes, They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Would anybody here say that Jesus is a good Lord it is a good Lord that the Lord our God is giving us. The final verse here leaves out many of the details from Numbers 13. It is given as a sufficient contrast between the attitude of the people and of the location that they had just trudged through. The land was a great and terrible wilderness, and yet the Lord led them through it. Canaan is a good land with abundant fruit, and it is certain that the Lord could bring them into it. Further, they acknowledge now that it is not just a good land— but one which Jehovah Eloheinu, or Jehovah our God, was giving to them. Thus, to enter is completely and solely based on an act of faith in the capability, reliability, and grace of the Lord. If one cannot see that as reflected in the gospel of Christ Jesus, he is not looking very hard. The Lord has already led us through the great and terrible wilderness of our lives, he has promised that he will conduct us into the promise, and he has offered it to us by grace. It is not something that we can earn apart from him. It is his, and therefore it must be received as a gift based on faith. The Lord our God, Jehovah Eloheinu, has done everything necessary to bring us to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is now up to each one of us individually to accept what he has done and to enter into the inheritance. It is that simple, and it is waiting for you to do so. And so as I do each week, I would like to stop and just very quickly give you the simple gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for your sins. You have sinned, 
If you say that you've never sinned, I really can't help you because somewhere deep down inside, you know that you have. You've told a lie. You've not given God all of your worship, all of your love, all of you. That's a sin right there. You may have done other things that are terrible, and those things are not above God's grace. Christ died for your sins, and it says that he was buried. That was to prove that he was really dead. He didn't just die and get resurrected real quickly by a uh, EMS person that came with an ambulance and brought him back to life. He was really dead, and he stayed in the grave, and it says on the third day he was raised from the dead. And that proves that he is the Lord God because the Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Well, if Jesus wasn't God, then he would be included in that all. He would be a sinner, but he's not. And so therefore he is the Lord God. He is the God man. And he came and he lived the perfect life of this law that we are now reviewing. And he lived it so that we could be freed from it because in fulfilling the law, he died in fulfillment of the law and thus the law ended. His death is what ended the law of Moses. And so what happens is when somebody puts their trust in what Jesus Christ has done, they die to the law. He was nailed to the cross. The cross, Paul says in uh, Colossians 2.14, that the law was nailed to the cross. But it wasn't the law. It was Christ, the embodiment of the law, who was nailed to the cross, and he died. So the law died with him. And therefore, we die to the law. And from there, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you call on Jesus, if you simply believe by faith that he did these things for you, the Bible says you will be saved. There's no if, and, or but about it. There's no conditions afterward. God's decrees are unconditional. God does not think in the sequence of time. When he decides something, it is eternal in nature. He doesn't say, oh, I've decided to unsave that person. That is contrary to what the nature of God is, and it's also contrary to the word of God salvation for you is eternal. So please call on Jesus Christ and be reconciled to this wonderful Lord who did these things for you. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 48. It is verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. He's not going to misdirect Israel. He's not going to misdirect you. He leads you on the way to where you should go. Next week is Deuteronomy 1, 26 through 33. Shall we trust him? I say yes, certainly. It's entitled, The Goer Before You. He. That'll be your fourth Deuteronomy sermon. I know that sounds kind of funny using the word he that way, but that's the way the Hebrew reads it. You'll find that out next week. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But... He also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got a short poem and we'll be done at the door, ready to enter. There he is, Christ standing right there waiting for you. And I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you, so I did conclude. The Lord your God has multiplied you and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are, you, his saints, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing is good, which you have told us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes too. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, so you are to do. And judge righteously as I am relaying between a man and his brother, or the stranger who is with him too. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. So to you I state, the case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it and judge accordingly. And at that time I commanded you all the things which you should do. So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, on that fateful day. Then I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. The land is now in our sights. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. Yes, be encouraged. 
as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them for us search out the land and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. So it was properly planned. The plan pleased me well, so I took 12 of your men. One man from each tribe was made a scout, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. That was a tasty plus. And they brought back word to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed the things we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and hear your word read. What a gift you have given us. What a treasure it is to find Jesus everywhere. Everything about what happened to Israel was just a template to show us the greater truths found in Jesus Christ and how he would come and he would do what he did for us. It's beyond imagination. And Lord, we have prayers for people that are sick, people that are hurting, people that are in distress, people that may be going through financial troubles, and we would raise them to you right now. And Lord, we would also pray wisely that we would have a wise Christian counselor to replace the one that is currently uh, counseling our president and uh, somebody that would be uh, well-versed in your word, somebody that would be willing to speak to him about the truths of the gospel and not just nonsense that is spouted out in the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. We would pray for that, and we would pray that this nation would be built up and established under you and under him. And we pray this, that you would be glorified and that this nation would once again turn its heart to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.